The views, information, or opinions expressed during this recording are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Alberta Health Services and its employees. This is Long COVID, the pandemic after the pandemic, an Alberta Health Services webinar and podcast series. Long COVID is now being recognized as a new chronic condition that is becoming better understood across the globe. We aim to support our healthcare providers and caregivers to find and use appropriate resources for themselves, their patients, and clients. We'll share stories from patients and providers and explore the innovative work being done in Alberta, across Canada, and globally to support long COVID. This series will help raise awareness of all the work that's being done to understand and address this complex puzzle. All right, this is Long COVID, the pandemic after the pandemic. It's an Alberta Health Services webinar and podcast series, and I'm your host, Shauna Curry. We've restarted the podcast and webinar series to bring you updates on Long COVID since a lot has changed over the past year and since we've concluded our previous four-part series. So through this three-part series, I'll continue to interview guests and provide updates on the programs and services that support Long COVID, common trends in Long COVID, and themes that have emerged along the way. We encourage you to share this information with patients and providers that can benefit from learning about the most current information about long COVID. This webinar is being recorded, so please mute your phones if you are calling in. And if you have any questions for our guests, please type them in the chat box and we'll answer as many as we can at the end of the episode. In this episode, I'm going to interview three patients who have experienced some improvements in their long COVID symptoms and we'll explore what rehabilitation programs or strategies supported them along their journey. It's important to understand that there is currently no cure for long COVID, and every patient's recovery trajectory will be different. So this webinar is not intended to create false hope for patients who are still struggling, nor is it to create the the disillusion that every patient will recover. However, we do want to acknowledge the improvement that some patients have experienced in their personal health journey. If you or someone you love is struggling with the symptoms of long COVID, we encourage you to use the Alberta Health Services online resources and symptoms that can be used to self-manage and to work with your primary care provider to determine a care plan that best supports your needs. We know that one of the main symptoms of long COVID is fatigue and requires strict energy management strategies. Some people know this as pacing. So today we're going to have a conversation with two patients that are live on the series, as well as one that will be recorded. And to respect their energy management needs, we're going to shift our question and answer period from the end of the webinar to the end of each of the patient stories so that they can jump off the call once they're done. Please type any questions that you have for our guests in the chat box, and we'll get through as many of those as we can. So today our first guest is Dagny Inayu. Dagny is a generalist and a cardiac sonographer or ultrasound tech who got COVID for the first time at the end of 2021. She's here to speak to us about her experiences with long COVID symptoms. Dagny, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you share a high-level overview of some of the main symptoms you first had with COVID-19 and more specifically about your experience managing long COVID symptoms? Okay. Um, probably the worst, the worst symptoms that I had were like brain fog to a point that when I was at my most sick, had you asked me my name, I would have really struggled. And that lasted 
for a few weeks. Um, I gradually started getting worse, but like the worst things that were going on for me were um, extreme fatigue, but an inability to sleep at the same time. Um, I had the brain fog that was incredibly, um, not only was it like struggling, not being able to like have the same capacity. Sometimes I would switch words and not realize I was switching those words. And then someone would dive in. Like, didn't she mean this? And I think, is that not what I said? Um, to be completely baffled by that. Um, I've also, like, I've always had longstanding anxiety, but I was able to get to a point before I got COVID where I was able to become non-medicated. Um, and now I'm back on medication. I had to kind of go through a slew of um, different things because the medication was, um, it, it was helpful, but it was also detrimental. Um, it's kind of like the biggest things. And then, sorry, what was the second question? I know you just asked me. That's okay. I, I sort of threw threw a whole bunch at you just talking about your your experiences with COVID and, and long COVID symptoms. So with with where you're at now, would you say that you're fully recovered from long COVID, maybe only a little bit or something else? I'd say I'm say I'm pretty close to fully recovered. Um like I think when you had asked me earlier prior to this, I'd said somewhere around 90%. Um, but like just this past weekend, I was able to stand for like three consecutive hours and it didn't wear me out. Um, so I'd say I'm pretty close to fully recovered. Um, and it's just a matter of like, am I conflating, um, not being at where I was a hundred percent because I'm not as in good a shape or because I'm out of practice of doing those things, or am I actually just never going to hit that a hundred percent? I think we were discussing before about being able to multitask. Um, and I used to be able to multitask in a way that I could have a hundred percent focus here, a hundred percent focus here and a hundred percent focus here. And now I have a hundred percent focus, but I can only do like 80% here and 20% here. Um, so I think those are things that I'm just going to have to like navigate in the future. Um, but I definitely feel like throughout the course of kind of making large lifestyle changes, I was able to get to this point. Um, a big thing being rest because I didn't let myself rest. And that's where I kind of started going from like had COVID started getting better. And then I, I put myself in a position where I was just go, go, go nonstop. And then I started getting almost as bad as I was when I was sick. Um, and I didn't really have anything to support me and I wish I did. And now I'm, um, once I was able to get to a point where I could create those supports and make those lifestyle changes and uh, just kind of like do a lot of more introspective work into how I was doing physically and mentally, then I was able to slowly, gradually come up. And then once I got to like 80%, it was kind of a super slow gradual, but from like 50 to 80% was just skyrocketed up. Yeah. I mean, you've probably touched on this a little bit through prioritizing sleep. Uh, and saying how important rest was. Uh, any other rehabilitation strategies that have given you the biggest improvement in your symptoms? Um, I stopped riding my bike, and I stopped. Um, I stopped having as much screen, and I stopped overworking myself. So, so I, I used a person who, if I wasn't working at least 40 to 50 hours a week, I felt non-functional. I also had an active social life. I'd ride my bike. I did a variety of other things. Um, I stopped doing all of it. I cut down to like 33 hours. I didn't ride. I think I rode my bike three times last year, which wasn't a lot for me. Um, and I cut my socialization down to once a week. And it was only on the weekends. 
Uh, that for me was the hardest part um, because I was so used to being social like five to six days out of the week and I cut it down to one for me like emotionally that was really difficult but then I found that I was having the capacity at work to remember information to say the right thing and to just kind of keep on track with what my expectations were um, and then eventually I just kind of was like I'm still pushing myself a little too hard and I wanted to reprioritize certain things in my life over others. And what that meant for me was finding a job where, as opposed to doing like I'm doing generalist and cardiac is what I was doing before, which is a lot of like obstetrics and breast ultrasounds, uh, pelvic and all of that. Every day I've gotten a new job where I'm doing, and this is very recent, but I've gotten a new job where I'm doing cardiac ultrasound and previously would have found that um, very frustrating doing the same thing day in and day out. But now I go home and I don't have to take an hour nap. Um, I can make plans. I can cook if I want to. I can watch a show and actually understand what's happening on the show um, and read a book. Oh my gosh, I haven't read since like 2019. So it's kind of been fun the past week, like six months being able to read for fun. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you've touched on so many different things and in, in terms of, you know, the, the finite amount of energy that we have and, and how you can look at it in terms of distributing that energy in, in different ways. And, you know, I, I appreciate how you, you said, you know, a job that you, or that would have been really boring for you in the past is now actually allowing you to have better quality of life in these other areas that were, were so important to you before. Um, any other lessons that you've learned through your recovery mm-hmm. that that might be helpful for others to know about? Oh my gosh! Um, <laughs> no pressure. Great question. Uh, <laughs> phenomenal question. Um, I want rest was definitely the most important, but it was like acknowledging what rest actually is. Um, because someone might say, "Oh, I'm laying in bed and I'm reading a book and I'm resting," and sometimes that not rest because actually stressing out about how what you could be doing otherwise or the things that you're missing out on um or alternatively reading might actually cause stress on you like I spent some days where I literally just like turn the lights off put on ambient and music and come with my cat and it took me a long time to realize that that was rest and not laziness yeah and there's a huge difference and you know, when, when we have this finite amount of energy, which which all of us have, we just don't necessarily appreciate it until, you know, something like long COVID happens. Um, yeah, and it's it's big decisions of where, where can your energy go. Uh, is there anything else that you wish that I asked you that you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, gosh. I don't, um, I don't think so. Um like there's things I'd share, but I don't think that they're actually like related to COVID just in terms of like my anxiety. Um, if the anxiety is different than how it used to be, if that, if that makes any sense, like I had probably in September, the worst panic attack in my life. And usually when I have a panic attack, I don't really come back to it. Like I process it. I, I go to therapy and I talk about it and I do what I need to um, but I actually found about a month ago, something similar that triggered that previous panic attack happened again. And usually I can be like, you know what, you've been through this, you can walk through it, you can set the panic attack away and like, um, like, like, analyze myself for a while. 
Um, whereas I found it threw me to an even worse place. And I actually had to like go hospitalize myself because the panic attack was so bad. Um, so it's the things that like I thought I knew and I thought I had control over and I thought I understood about myself are just different. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a huge learning curve and, you know, things that you think that, you know, maybe, maybe change or maybe you don't know and, and they react differently, you know, with, with long COVID, it, it changes so many aspects of, of our life. Uh, we'll move into some questions now. We've got a great one in the, in the chat. Uh, it says, how did you accept that you needed to prioritize rest? And was this difficult to communicate to others? I think it's such an important question. Uh, that is a great question. Um, okay, to be frank, I was at a point where I was about to lose my job. Um, I was really struggling to keep up. And then eventually I talked to my manager and I was like, Hey, I've had all these things and they're not helping. And I'm making these changes and I'm, it's not helping. I need help from the organization. Um, and that meant cutting down to like a, a more reduced schedule. And then I wasn't doing any like um, professional work outside of that schedule either. Um, that was really, really hard for me to accept was that I couldn't be the workaholic that I, I used to be and I couldn't perform at the level that I used to. And it, it, it took me almost losing my job to kind of get there, uh, which is very, very um, not, not the best way to approach uh, a healing journey. But for me, that's what it took. And I think if you can avoid that and you have a supportive environment around you, um, it would be asking people to help you, like reaching out to your community and like your peers and being like, look, frankly, I'm struggling. I need to figure out a solution and doing it on my own isn't doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and to pull from from other worlds and in, in terms of energy management, it's it's looking at like, what can you stop doing? What can you delegate? Um, and what can you dump and just say it just mm-hmm. doesn't need to get done? You know, and, and I think you've really shown examples of that through through sharing your story today. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Dagny, I want to be mindful of your time and your energy. So we really appreciate you being on the show today. I uh, will let you jump off and I wish you all the best in your continued recovery. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was lovely being here. Take care. Our second guest is Tristan Campbell. Tristan has been living with long COVID since his acute COVID infection in February 2022, and he is a patient of the Community Accessible Rehab or CAR long COVID program since the fall of 2022. So Tristan, just in a few minutes, can you share your experience with managing your long COVID symptoms? Hi, good afternoon. Um, I, I went directly from my acute infection right into long COVID. I, I never had a period of recovery. Um, towards the end of my acute COVID, I started to have several symptoms, such as cardiac symptoms, um, breathlessness that I didn't have in, my, in a pretty minor, um, moderate uh, acute infection. Um, so for me, I've never, uh, to this day, I have yet to really see much recovery. Um, but I've been on a journey to manage my long COVID and get back uh, some of the sense of self that I lost. Because in the initial uh, at least six months of my illness, I was suffering from many symptoms that are common with long COVID, such as um, severe fatigue, as well as brain fog. Um, and my life 
in a, in really a heartbeat, all of a sudden was a fraction of what it was prior to uh, my COVID infection. Um, so really, even though I to this day I'm I'm you know 15 odd months into this, and I my my the bare bones of my condition has remained virtually unchanged. Um, but I've employed several um, strategies uh, that have allowed me to really kind of get back to the old Tristan, um, even though he looks very different than he used to. Oh, that's such a such a great way to to put perspective on that. And you know, I know that you haven't seen a lot of improvements in in your long COVID symptoms, and through this process, that you've learned a lot about how to understand and how to manage your condition. And you know, what what a great positive perspective to say. You know, I'm. I'm still here and, and I'm, you know, you've evolved. Uh, can you share some of those learnings with us of, you know, what, what are the key lessons and key takeaways? Um, one of the most important strategy, strategies for me is breathing. Um, because long COVID affects so many different parts of my body, many of them are physical, many of them are cognitive and emotional. Um, and breathing for me is the one thing that kind of joins everything together. So breathing has such a great, um, impact on mindfulness strategies, maintaining my emotional wellness, controlling stress. Um, because as, as the previous panelist alluded to, anxiety looks a lot different for a lot of us compared to before. Um, so breathing has, has a really good mindfulness wellness component because it's, if anybody has experience with meditation, breathing is such a huge part of that. Um, breathing also has a great part in helping me with, uh, physical things because I, I'm very much weaker than I used to be, uh, lift just the, the bare amount of lifting going upstairs. All of those things are still hard to this day. Um, but breathing is one of the things that really makes those, those, uh, everyday physical motions, not so impactful on my symptoms. Um, breathing reminds me to slow down which is really important, going slow. Um, it, it really joins everything together, taking a proper breath right from your gut um, and being mindful about it. Um, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of practice. And especially if you already have breathlessness symptoms, if you struggle with breathing through your nose, congestion, those all play a part. Um, so there's definitely a learning process to it. It doesn't happen overnight. You can't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to change my day with some breathing. It really takes a lot of time, more time than you, than you'd like to accept. Um, it's, it, it, it takes a lot of time, but it's very important because it really allows me to control the multiple facets of my condition. That's such, such wise advice. And it's something that we totally take for granted. We think, well, well, I'm breathing and and obviously we are, or, or we wouldn't be here, but it's something like you said, there, there needs to be this conscious and intentional effort in terms of, you know, what's coming in, what's going out, how deeply we're breathing. Are we breathing in the top part of our chest to the sides of our lungs, all, all of those pieces, the you know, the rate, the pace, the, you know, some people do different breathing techniques with pauses. And, and so there's so much more than just saying, just breathe better. So thank you for, for sharing that piece. Uh, mm -hmm. Any other, any other rehabilitation strategies that have given you some big improvements in your symptoms? Like obviously breathing is one of them. Um, it's not a particular strategy per se, but one thing that allowed me to really get on the management train was uh, accepting my condition. And accepting that I am, I'm different than I used to be. Um, that the the acceptance part of it really was was. 
I, I thought I could be the old me. And um, it really, I, I had a long, 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 long period, several months period of really kind of being somewhat in denial that I was as sick as I was, especially because I had family members that were casting doubt on my condition. I felt like doctors weren't taking me seriously. Um, I, I've, it, it seems to be a pretty common experience that this, this is a very isolating condition. Um, as if the pandemic in its in its original form wasn't isolating enough. So a lot of us have kind of had to go through that. And then getting this long COVID, it was like almost like lockdown all over again. Um, so I I had to go through a really, I had to dig deep into past strategies that I used to manage my mental health before. Um, things like dialectical behavioral therapy. I've had some experience with that. And I had to go right back to that manual and use those strategies to really accept that this is real. This is 100% a real condition. Um, and in absence of recovery, I've, I've had to change my life. And, but it, it, with, with enough patience, with enough work, with the right supports, um, you really relying on your strengths that you already have, um, starting from what you know best um, is a really great place because then as soon as you accept that things are different, um, you can start even even if you're not healing in the sense of your condition, you're healing your your soul and getting back to who you are. Um, so that was a barrier I had to cross. And as soon as I crossed that barrier, I started to make much more progress with employing things like the breathing I talked about to be able to start to do things that I used to do, um, even though they do look very different. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And I, I don't know who needs to hear this today, but you are not broken. And I, I think that's the feeling that comes with having chronic conditions is that, you know, it's this deep sense of I'm broken, I need to get fixed, I need to fix this condition. And, and we we are not broken, we are whole people. And, and that's such an important piece that we we really need to take ownership of is, you know, there, there might be things that are different, but you are not broken. And, and I really appreciate you being incredibly vulnerable to, to share that, Tristan. Uh, is there anything else that, that we haven't talked about today that you'd like to share that you think is important for our listeners to know? Well, that's hard to say. There's so much I could be here all day. <laughs> <laughs> I really, know. Uh, the, the, this, this condition, like I've, I've kind of alluded to, it's really affected virtually every part of my body. Um, everything from cognitive, um, much like the the last panelist alluded to the multitasking. I used to be a multitasker as well. I would uh, I'd have music running in the background. I'm a, I'm a musician, so I'd I'd always have tunes in the background. Um, I can't do that anymore because just just the act of trying to go about doing dishes or socializing with music in the background that's oh, game over. It's it there the the amount of sensory demands it looks very different. So. Um, it's the, the main thing that I can really share. It just, it, it took me a long time to realize I was not alone with this. I would read reports. I would read doctor, doctor, uh, uh I'd read studies. I'd read, um, mainstream media reports on people with long COVID. And they would always say, you're not alone. There, there's a lot of people going through. I didn't really understand that until I started with the community accessible rehab program. I really did feel isolated for a long time. Um, so it took me seeing other people like me on the Zooms um, and things like that. It took that to wake me up to realize I am not alone. And this is this is a real condition. Um, the, o- the only other thing on that is, is 
the condition looks different for everybody. Everybody, virtually every long COVID case is different. Um, some people can recover over time. Some people can't. I'm one of the latter. I, it, if, if I have a lapse in my management, I'm right back to where I was um, shortly after my acute COVID. So um, every everything is different. So if you if someone ever is trying to give you blanket universal strategies, it's really, really hard. That's, that's why I think breathing is the closest thing that for me, that's a universal strategy. Um, but everybody is different. It takes a lot of trial and error. Takes a lot of patience, um, and and the 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 illness is really episodic. It is a roller coaster. Oh boy, it's a roller coaster. There are ups and there are downs, and sometimes there are ups and downs. And it's uh, it taking the time to really be kind to yourself, knowing that um, with enough time you can hopefully uh, manage your symptoms and get back to the old you or whatever you want the new you to look like. Thank you, Tristan. There's a, a comment in the uh, the question box there uh, from one of our physiotherapists that says, so well-spoken, Tristan. Uh, you, you've been a great role model for the long COVID community. Please keep telling your story whenever you can. Uh, and with that, I'm going to let you jump off the call because I know energy demands are, are high when we ask you to do these types of things. So uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for, for sharing your story with us. I, I hope that you continue on your health journey. Uh, with the same positive attitude and, and determination that you've shown us today and, and all the best. Thank you so much, Shauna. Best of wishes. You take care. All right. Now we're going to switch things up. We're going to share a video story from Velva Dawn Silver, who was previously a guest on our uh, webinar before. So give me one second to cue this up. Thank you so much for joining us today, Velva Dawn. As I mentioned, you've been out a guest on our webinar before, and so we're thrilled to have you here today. Uh, I know that we did talk about your experience with long COVID and your your journey on the previous episode we had you on, but some of our listeners may not have heard that previous episode. So I'd love if you could start off by sharing your experiences with getting diagnosed with COVID-19 and, and long COVID and uh, what's brought you here today. Thank you, Shauna. Um, I'm happy to share and help others understand, you know, through my own experience, what I have gone through. Um, I was diagnosed April 10th of 2021 with COVID-19, um, I think the UK variant. And um, it was, I was very, very sick with it. And it was at the very beginning when the doctors really weren't sure what to do because I was a very healthy 50-year-old um, female who really didn't have any pre-existing comorbidities um, to have been as sick as I was with COVID. So my story goes that, you want me to share all of my story now? Yes, you can go ahead and, and tell us. Okay. Okay. So my story goes that um, I just began to feel um, a real heaviness in my chest. And I started to have pain um, around my head, unlike anything I've ever felt. And then I started actually bleeding from every orifice in my body. And I could not get the pain under control. And I went into a local urgent care and they tried to give me some IV saline, told me to keep my, my meds under control. I went home and I just declined. And then eventually uh, my friend who's a respiratory therapist came and looked at my pallor and 
took me into a local hospital. And that is where I remained for almost a week um, on oxygen and steroids and antibiotics. And then I was at home in isolation for another 30 days um, just because I had COVID pneumonia. And the doc had said, if you end up with bacterial pneumonia, you won't survive. So it was a lot of perseverance mentally and um, just really digging deep within myself to understand what was going on with my body. And what were your biggest symptoms of long COVID that continued on beyond that initial acute phase? My symptoms for long haul was insomnia. I could not sleep. It was insomnia. It was memory loss. I found the smallest things I couldn't remember how to do. Paying my bills was one of those things that I struggled with. It was like time would go by and it be it had been months. So it was paying my bills, my memory, um, my energy levels were really, really low. And I continued to have really bad COVID headaches. So it was like this trigeminal nerve headache would be triggered um, in the mastoid um, bone too. And I just had a lack of appetite. I, w- I had depression, um, just a loss of hope. And, um, and still, I had a cough for quite some time after I had had COVID. And we know that many, many people are, are still struggling with symptoms of long COVID. They have for a long time and they haven't necessarily seen improvements. Where would you say you are on that um, trajectory for long COVID symptoms? Would you say you're fully recovered, 20%, 80%, 50%, maybe something else? So for myself, I was very fortunate to get into the long haul COVID clinic um, at Peter Lougheed with Dr. McKay. And the first thing she told me was to get on the treadmill and to put it at 10% incline and to just walk, to get my lungs um, healthy and to begin moving my body again. And so I did exactly what she had asked me to do. I took care of myself. I had a lot of sleep, a lot of water, a lot of downtime um, counseling. And I would say my symptoms are about, I would say I'm 95% healed. I still have um, a lot of um, subdural echimosis, which they're trying to figure out why. If I carry a a grocery bag over my arm, I get a bruise. My skin tears very easily on my lower extremities. So that part, they're still trying to figure out with a hematologist. Um, But for the rest, it takes time. I find that if there's stress in my life, I have to really um, look at my priorities and only choose the things that need to be done today. I um, Because if I get overwhelmed, I still find that my brain doesn't necessarily function like it used to in sorting out problems. Thanks so much for sharing that. And, you know, we we realize that everyone's recovery journey will be a little bit different. And it's not a clear path. You don't just go A, B, C, D. It it doesn't flow that easily. Um, Through this process for you, what would you say you've learned the most in terms of what recovery strategies have helped you the most? Uh, where do you get the biggest return? And and again, this is so individualized per per each patient, but uh, just curious if any have worked better for you than perhaps others. 
So for myself, um, I did a combination of things. Um, counseling was the top of the docket, dealing with a little bit of PTSD um, from going out in public. You know, I'm going to go out in public again. How do I feel safe? How do I keep myself secure? Um, so counseling really helped with that. Um, the other thing that I really did is meditation. Meditation is absolutely vital for me and always has been in my, in my life, but more so now. So I find that when the anxiety comes out, when I have to travel, you know, on an airplane or I am going to go out in public, I make sure that I meditate and I clear and center myself so that, um, I feel a sense of safety within myself before I go out. Um, so that has been really helpful. And then I keep in touch with, um, all my specialists. So my cardiologist, um, my family doctor is really good if I have any concerns, um, <clears throat> at doing that and just understanding my own needs. So what I mean by that is if I don't feel like I want to go do something because I feel like there's going to be too many people, um, I just don't go. I, I, I don't need to make an excuse. I just honor my own boundaries and listen to what feels best for, for myself. And then, of course, um, energy, you know, healing that I get on myself that really has helped me um, just keep centered and clear and grounded so that I feel a sense of safety within my own body and exercise. Exercise is absolute key for me. So doing cardio daily. Um, lifting weights. Um, I found that I lost a lot of muscle mass during COVID and also having a hysterectomy being a 52-year-old woman. So I've really learned that moving my body, being out in nature, hiking and lifting weights is very important for me to keep myself feeling strong internally as well as physically. Thanks, Velva Don. I, I love how you took this combined approach between uh, things that are very physical, that are very mental. You know, you really looked at this from that holistic perspective in terms of all of these aspects of yourself. You know, the especially you know working with a, a counselor to help work on on that side, and you know the self talk in terms of these thoughts and beliefs that that we have, and that you really tuned into what your body needs. And I know you touched on exercise being a really important strategy for you, and and just to to advise our listeners that. Exercise is one of these things that we think is absolutely a really great strategy, and, and generally it is. However, with long COVID, sometimes it can be harmful or have setbacks as a result of pushing too hard and too quick. And I know I've talked to Velva Dawn about this before, and that you know it's not just jump in and, and just do unlimited exercises; that it's it's what your body is able to tolerate. And you know, you were working with physicians and and with providers to help support that for you, rather than just you know, jumping in and, and doing what you you want to do or maybe, you know, think you ought to be doing, uh, that it was supervised and, and progressive, that it didn't just, you know, you didn't just get to where you are overnight. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the other thing I wanted to add in there was I really watched anti-inflammatory foods that I was eating because I found that I had a lot of joint pain, especially in my fingers. Um, and because I type a lot being an author, um, I ended up really being mindful of foods that would flare that up and, you know, paying attention to, you know, what can I do to decrease this inflammation because my hands were really important to me. So I found taking supplements um, really helped, um, talking to my doctor about it, but also just watching the anti-inflammatory, there's an anti-inflammatory diet 
um, that was actually recommended to us in the COVID clinic. Um, and that was really helpful also. That's great. Thank you. And, and mm-hmm. out of all of these strategies, what would you say, um, whether it's physical or emotional or intellectual, like what have you learned through your recovery journey that you think might be helpful for others to know that, that maybe we haven't already touched on? So what I would say is everybody is different. Everybody's case is completely different. So don't compare yourself to anyone else um, and don't push yourself. You know, this is something that we're really learning as we go. And if you're feeling like you need to have a nap, have a nap. Really listen to your body um, because this is sort of something that we're breaking through, trying to figure out what the after effects are. Um, anxiety is something that I have seen that has come up a lot. And, um, I think it's something that needs to be talked about a lot more is the anxiety going out in public. And what if I get sick again? What does that look like? And how do I work through that? So that's why meditation has really helped me calm those moments. And so has my counselor, um, just giving me the tools that I need when I get into those situations. And that they will continue to possibly keep coming up. It's not something that's a one and done. You know, um, for me, it still does come up. You know, when I'm on the airplane and I look around and I see people without masks, if I see somebody coughing, I do put my mask on myself. Um, It just makes me feel safe. So I think you have to do what feels good for you and honor those things that make you feel safe. Thank you. Those are all such great points. And you know, I, I really appreciate how, you know, you really emphasize the slowing down and, and the presence. And it's amazing how much energy we spend on whether it's anxiety that escalates that we haven't supported or, you know, these thoughts that can, can run away and thinking that we should do this and, you know, oh, I need to do this next. And, you know, taking that meditation approach and, and really focusing on being present, listening to your body and, and letting go of some of those pressures and expectations then we have more energy in our energy bank to support other activities or or to support the things that we're already doing and, and need to get through rather than putting that extra pressure to to get through things. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I appreciate all your, your different perspectives and the experiences you've had. Is there anything else that you would like me to ask you or that you'd like to share that we haven't touched on today? Um. I think the thing that's really important is, is, is though for most people, you know, it's not talked about anymore. Um, for those of us that did have COVID, sometimes it's still a very real thing. And, um, I find people don't want to talk about it. They're like, Oh, it's already done and gone, but it isn't for those of us who have still had the after effects and are still, you know, being treated. Um, it may be something that goes on for quite some time. And we just remember to have compassion for those people and just to take time to listen to their concerns and honor them. You know, if you're taking that friend for a ride and they've had COVID and they're stressed, put a mask on if that makes them feel better. Sometimes just understanding, you know, the feelings of someone else um, is all that's needed. Something simple. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing and for taking time uh, out of your busy day to join us and and for sharing your experiences. And uh, thanks again. All the best. Oh, you are welcome. Thank you, Shauna. 
powerful stories from all of our patients today. Uh, So now we're going to switch it up again. Our fourth guest on the show today is Christine Russell. Christine is a patient and family advisor, and for over five years, she's taken a strong interest in patient quality improvement, collaborative patient engagement in research, and health-related quality of life in healthcare settings and beyond. Her primary interest is on the patients who have been critically ill, including the neonatal and pediatric population, but has a keen interest in all aspects of research, healthcare delivery, and patient outcomes. She's a part of several national organizations as a patient advisor, including Alberta Health Services, CanChild, the University of British Columbia's Action on Sepsis Research Cluster, and Sepsis Canada, a multidisciplinary research network where she serves as the marketing and communications program manager. Uh, Christine has done so much. It's incredible. Uh, Christine, can you tell us a little bit more about your role and how your work in sepsis overlaps with what we're already seeing in the long COVID community? Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, I think maybe I'll preface a little bit first um, why I guess I'm a part of those networks. Um, And I'll just be quick. Um, In 2014, um, after the birth of my third baby, um, a baby girl, uh, we were diagnosed with uh, postpartum sepsis and neonatal sepsis caused by group A strep, um, which many of you probably know is uh, the bacteria that causes strep throat. Um, So quite similarly, um, like COVID is a communicable disease, a reportable communicable disease. Um, And when we were diagnosed, um, I live in Medicine Hat, um, we required life-saving measures being airlifted from the Medicine Hat Regional Hospital to the Foothills Hospital. Um, And we were treated very similar to the early phases of COVID um, when contact tracing um, discussions with the medical officer of health um, and that sort of process was engaged um, almost uh, nine years ago. Um, so we, uh, my daughter spent 21 days on a level three NICU. Um, we almost lost her um, to her sepsis. Um, and I spent 14 days um, treated for a septic infection as well. Um, and we spent time on isolation similar to COVID. Um, a lot of very similar parallels to COVID, um, but quite a few number of years ago. Um, in addition to that, um, we've both uh, suffered long-term sequelae from that critical illness similar to long COVID. And so it sort of forced me into this world of quality healthcare, like healthcare quality improvement and research, because there was nothing in the terms of care pathway for, um, for Ellie is my daughter's name, primarily um, in that neonatal care pathway of critical illness for long-term recovery. Um, as well as myself, I guess, too. So that's kind of where I am now. Um, and so my trajectory of of my professional career sort of, I guess I was sort of forced into that. Um, 
Um, not that I, I mean, I, I absolutely enjoy it. It's become my passion. Um, and, and so my, my work involves with Sepsis Canada, which is a, a Canadian Institute of Health Research funded network. It started in 2019. Um, the focus, which was driven by um, investigators across Canada, researchers and clinicians, bedside clinicians, primarily ICU clinicians, um, focuses on um, um, researching the causes, the diagnosis, the treatment, and in addition, the recovery, um, supporting the recovery of, of septic patients. Thanks for sharing that, Christine. And I think the work that you've done through sepsis, there's so many parallels to the long COVID world. So we we chatted before the webinar and you said something that stood out to me. You said, I know what it's like to go through a critical illness and not have a rehab strategy. And, and that was from your, your personal experience that you just shared with us. But can you can you talk a little bit more about what that means to you and, and what those parallels are to, to where things are with long COVID or, or the work that is being done or the work that needs to be done about long COVID? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, there's a statistic in in septic patients primarily um, in 2017, 47 to 50 million people a year die of sepsis. Um, 2.8 people per second die of sepsis in the world. Um, the Canadian statistics aren't aren't well reported, unfortunately. Um, but if, if we look at worldwide statistics, and in COVID we had massive worldwide statistics, um, that's that's just in in the the mortality rate. But if we look at morbidity rates, um, th they're much, much higher. And, and, and in septic patients, I mean, if we're just measuring rate of survival, but not looking at what those implications are after being discharged, um, there's, there's a huge gap. And so there was a large, a huge gap that I found primarily with when we were discharged from the hospital, one thing that stuck out to me was when, when Ellie was discharged from the NICU, um, the one comment that, that stood out was we wouldn't really know what kind of the long-term impacts for her would be until we started to see her develop. And then that's when we started to see the long-term impacts for her. We saw things like severe fatigue. Um, we saw things like neuropathic pain. She has a pain disorder. We saw things like um, intellectual delays, um, uh, sensory um, issues with sensory input. Um, she's been diagnosed autistic, um, ADHD, um, a lot of the things, anxieties. Um, unfortunately, because there is a lack of research and, a, and no care pathway um, for infants that are critically ill like that. Um, and you would see that in the pediatric population as well with COVID, the care pathway, um, that, that by the time we started to see those things um, and there was no research being done, we were just being sent to specialist, to specialist, to specialist, to specialist, which caused severe medical trauma. So now we're dealing with severe medical trauma, um, anxiety, and, and unfortunately, um, it's almost like, like you said, um, and, and what I said was that I'm, uh, we're a prime example of the lack of a rehab strategy 
and the the reactivity of not having a rehab strategy now um, when we look at healthcare quality of life. And, and that's kind of one of my really big interests. Um, when you look at a child and years of life lived and years of life sick, um, Ellie's unfortunately a, a very um, prime example of, of a child that has been sick her entire life um, and has repeated medical trauma from not having that pathway of care for a rehab strategy from being critically ill. Um, I, I, I mean, my, my points may sound negative. However, COVID has given this opportunity of having this large population of individuals, um, unfortunately being sick all at one time, but has allowed for massive funding opportunities, a massive opportunity for us to say, okay, look, there are people that are sick right now. There are people being discharged, coming back, being sick. And we have the, the opportunity to put together a rehab strategy because there are people suffering long-term sequelae and, and, and implications from being sick. And we have the opportunity to, to recognize that we can facilitate their recovery. Whereas we didn't have that. And there are many patients that have suffered sepsis that haven't had that. I, I so, like how you, yeah, I like how you spun that and then, you know, kind of put that, the positive end on it in terms of, you know, yes, you know, there are these, these challenges and struggles, but when we look at what Alberta Health Services and, and really any, any health jurisdiction in, in the world has done as a result of this increased funding, like we have created clinics in you know faster time than I think has has ever been created before and to create the pathways and the tools and the resources to support long COVID that wasn't even a thing a couple of years ago. And it'll be really interesting to see where that work continues to go to over over the next couple of years. And as we continue to learn more, as we continue to put supports in place. Um, you know, so with that in mind, how how do we reduce the silos between health organizations or perhaps research organizations or, you know, where some of the funding comes from to support these types of programs uh, or sharing information between health organizations. Yeah, I, I think, I think it's, it's important that, um, I, I mean, maybe it's the patients that bridge the gap, the patients that have the lived experience of, I mean, for example, like myself, um, I, I was a part of the, the long COVID rehabilitation um, project that started and it was I hadn't had COVID yet, <laughs> um, but it was because I understood that there, there was a, an intersection between long-term sequelae of critical illness and, and a gap in care pathway and the, the similarities between long COVID. The symptoms of patients that what we call um, post-sepsis syndrome, which is now a, a labeled diagnosis, um, still not well studied, not well um, integrated into uh, healthcare um, organizations or care pathways, let's say. It's becoming more common. I think it's more common in the United States and the UK, but in Canada, it's becoming more common because of organizations like Sepsis Canada or other research clusters across the country that if if there are individuals that can start to bridge that gap and have those conversations and say, look, there, there are 
similarities between long COVID and post-sepsis syndrome. And, and we need to recognize that patients that have suffered crit- critical illness need care pathways and need, um, and it doesn't, it's not going to be the same for everyone. Tristan nailed it right on the head that symptoms are going to ebb and flow. Um, they're not going to be the same for everyone. And some patients will recover 100%. They could be, they could have COVID recover 100%. Patients can be septic recover 100%, but there are going to be patients that don't, but we need to be able to screen those patients, all of them the same way and give them the opportunity to reach back out. Should those, those symptoms emerge down the road, there just needs to be that, that consistent communication between all organizations and all um, departments within the provincial healthcare systems that can, that can share best practices with, with, with one another. And with that comes a level of humility to say that, you know what, we don't know everything about long COVID. We don't know everything about post-sepsis syndrome. We don't know everything about the long-term implications of any critical illness, but we need to learn from one another to do better for what will improve patient outcomes. Thanks, Christine. Uh, We've got about two minutes left here. So you shared a really shocking statistic with me before the webinar. You said 61% of patients don't know what sepsis is or what the signs and symptoms are of sepsis. So we've mentioned this on the webinar and in, in many other areas that long COVID has over 200 symptoms. So that makes it really challenging to recognize and diagnose compared to other medical conditions. And so just wanted to see what you make of this information and, you know, what we can do in terms of advocating for the recognition, the awareness of long COVID and from the learnings you've had in the sepsis community. Yeah, I think, I mean, recognizing what sepsis is and recognizing what the long-term sequelae symptoms are are two different things, right? Sepsis is a life-threatening issue, um, and only 61% of individuals know that. There's a huge gap in health literacy around that in itself um, to recognize when you need to seek medical attention, which will ultimately save your life. Um, And then if we don't, if we don't, if there's a gap in healthcare knowledge around that, there's absolutely a gap in recognizing um, that it there could be long-term implications of being septic. So there's a there's a massive gap around that. Um, but I think what it comes down to is is the acknowledgement between patients knowing, okay, knowing that indicating to their healthcare provider even when they aren't feeling well after having COVID to say, you know what, I did have COVID in 2020 or 2021, but, and I'm not feeling well now, here are some of my symptoms that there is just that, you know what, this could have been maybe, maybe you're not feeling well because you had COVID and here's, this is just the acknowledgement. And again, something else that Tristan said too, is that that acknowledgement that those symptoms that you're feeling are real that long COVID is a real thing um, because I think for the longest time, even in our situation to saying that for me after being septic and just saying, you know what, I don't feel well, like I still don't feel well after being septic and just chalking it up to be like, you know, I just had a baby. And of course I don't feel well. I have three kids under the age of five. I don't feel well. Um, 
but then still not getting bad, better and continuing to not get better and not having some form of rehabilitation strategy in place where if I did have those things, maybe I would have recovered because now Ellie is even in a position now that I'm not sure that she will even ever recover because she didn't have that opportunity at a developmental stage to recover. Um, it's Im- imperative that these strategies are put in place now and opportunities are given to patients early in their recovery so that they have the opportunity to return to somewhat of what their new normal or a normal sense of life could be. Um, but going back to what you're saying, I think just that acknowledgement that they recognize that they've had COVID, that this could be from COVID, and that the healthcare provider can recognize that, you know what, this could be from COVID and here are some things that you can do um, to maybe help recover. Thanks so much, Christine. Uh, That wraps up our show for today. A huge, huge, huge thank you for our guests today, Dagny Inouye, Tristan Campbell, Velva Don Silver, and Christine Russell for joining us and for sharing their stories. We hope that you'll be able to take this information and share it with your colleagues. And if you work with patients, we hope you'll share these resources that we talked about today. Um, the replays of this series will be available on the Alberta Health Services YouTube channel and the uh, Alberta Health Services SoundCloud account under the long COVID webinar title. A special thanks to our digital media and communications teams for all their help with editing and posting of these webinars. And a thank you to each of you for taking the time out of your day to tune in and make these events a success. Until next time. Together, we do amazing things every day.